Good afternoon. Happy Friday. It is a soggy one. Busy show coming up. We are going to talk more about travel. And now that we know the date when the land border is going to be open between the United States and Canada for non-essential travelers, trying to get a few more details on exactly what that is going to look like. Take a listen. This is Dr. Teresa Tam speaking earlier today when asked about the travel, the border opening, and also asked about people in Canada with mixed vaccine doses. This is a, a difficult area, but I think we are going to do our best with not just the United States, but we've been engaging all the sun destinations. And, and it seems that most of them will accept mixed doses or they have no requirements at this point. Um, the Europeans, the UK is already accepting uh, Canada's mixed dose. And we know that a, you know, over a dozen, at least 16, I think at the last count, European countries have their own um, combination uh, schedules already. So there are some countries where there's more certainty in terms of that recognition. And the U.S. is the key country. So I think we're going to have another look at the uh, national approach uh, once we see what the U.S. decision is. And of course, we want to be able to support Canadian travelers and look at all different options uh, but but as you say, the U.S. is 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 key, and uh, we look forward to uh, keep engaging them and seeing what the decision is. That was Dr. Teresa Tam. Let's bring in Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. What a difference a day makes as far as some of the details, because we were so looking for kind of clarification. There were so many things we didn't know, dates, tests, mixed doses, etc. Obviously, we know the date of November the 8th, and the phones are going crazy here. People asking about, of course, mixed doses. And um, I'm not sure you've probably already seen there was a little Twitter that went out from a Bloomberg reporter Mm -hmm. talking about the fact that mixed doses looks like they will be accepted. Toronto Star, about an hour ago, also posting. It looks very promising. So the other thing that kind of makes me, I just feel a little better was that if, if I heard correctly, uh, you, you were listening at the same time from Dr. Teresa Tam is that the U S is a key country. And once their decision is made, Canada will address how they will help people who can't travel because of mixed doses. So I feel like it won't just be the four provinces that are already giving people a third dose in order to travel. They would look at making this go right across Canada. But I don't think we're going to need to get there. I bet you by the end of the day, we will have clarification. It certainly seems that way. And yeah, I think you and I both saw the the tweet, Josh Wingrove, who's the Bloomberg reporter, uh, saying that he had confirmed it or had heard from a source that mixed doses were going to be allowed. Did you have any clarification, though, on what it's actually going to look like as far as when people are either driving or flying as of November 8th? Let's say that all is well and that, yes, mixed doses are, are allowed, so people are going. Do you know what you're going to have to actually provide at the border to get into the United States? Well, I would presume until we have a federal uh, vaccine passport that you will need to go to your province. So for here in BC, you'll need to go to the BC Health Gateway and pull off the actual document that shows one, like your first dose, your second dose, the dates you had that, as well as the, the type of vaccine that you had. 
right now the federal government is probably weeks, it could be a couple of months even, away from providing uh, a federal option. They are actually working with all of the provinces that hold that information in order to have what we will eventually have, which will ha- be kind of like our, our passport that has the Canada flag and the word Canada that we're so used to using. But until then, go to BC Health Gateway and um, pull off your official uh, vaccine certificate. And the other thing that was the big question is the PCR test to return. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it sounded from yesterday that when Christia Freeland spoke, she kind of dug her heels in and that you will, it seems to be that you will need to have a PCR test to return, whether it's via a land border or uh, a return flight back to Canada. So we've needed that PCR test to come back to Canada. You need it no matter where you fly. And I don't, it doesn't seem like she's uh, looking at taking that away anytime soon. And what I read was that uh, Canada's approach, which has been to follow science and to follow the recommendations of public health authorities and to err on the side of caution, which has served us really, really well. So I don't see that going away. But what it will do is put a lot of pressure on destinations that rely on Canadian tourists, places like New York, Anaheim, Florida, um, places in Arizona and and, and California that are so popular, like Scottsdale and and Palm Springs, um, to to make it cost-effective and convenient for people to get those tests. So right now, the average is sitting at around $129 to $149 for ones that will guarantee you the results within 48 hours so that you can use it for travel. But I do see um, those tests coming down in cost. In fact, I just had guests come back from New York City. They had an amazing time, Jill, but they also said that the test was free for them. Hmm. And there were pop-up clinics everywhere for those who needed a PCR test to return to Canada. So uh, I think uh, that's, you know, it's, it's, we'll wait and see what happens on that. But this is really promising. It's been very confusing for people to know, can I travel? Can I not? And, and there will certainly be people who won't travel. They don't feel comfortable yet, given the, the Delta variant and given COVID, because you're not leaving it behind you. You still have to be very careful. But it's very promising for people who are desperate to see family and friends uh, that they haven't for 19 months now. Uh, yeah, it is. It is good news, especially like you said, not not everybody's going to jump on this, but such good news. Uh, I do wonder, though, and this was brought up yesterday, uh, talking about the PCR test. It will be interesting to see what happens, because even just across the border in Washington state, there are a lot of places where you can drive through and get them. But it seems like you have to be a U.S. citizen or U.S. resident to get the free test at that point. But but I would imagine, like you said, people or places are going to try and make it more attractive for people to come and the ease and, and lowering the cost, if not making them free, to entice people to come, even if they still have to get that PCR test. So it's really interesting that you you bring that up because uh, I have traveled, as you know, to Arizona. And what I, I actually got off the phone literally five minutes before I came on with you to talk to a tourist board out of an uh, area in California. Uh, they said that diagnostic tests are free even for visitors, you use your name, you use your hotel address or your vacation rental address, and they will give you a test if you are concerned about exposure. The moment you say, I need it for travel, you will be charged. Hmm. Um, and there are, but that is something that, you know, we'll start to see more of. And if you plan it right, you can have that test taken around. I would say between 50 and 60 hours is probably kind of the peak 
time if you're on a trip before your return flight back to Canada to make sure you get the results and that they don't expire before you actually cross the border back into Canada. Um, but it's just something to keep in mind if you happen to be traveling, certainly in California, where, where I was talking to someone about this. All right. Very interesting developments today. Claire, thank you so much for joining us once again and uh, bringing us all the latest on this. So we will certainly be staying tuned to any more developments. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, Jill. And I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being with us on this Friday. We are talking now about something called street sweeps. And for five days, this took place during the City of Vancouver's annual Homelessness Action Week. There were several members of VANDU, which the, is the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, as well as the Coalition of Peers Dismantling the Drug War, residents of the downtown east side neighborhood advocates and other research. They spent the five days documenting street sweeps and their impact on people's lives. They talked to several people people that were the focus of these street sweeps. So joining me to talk more about what was discovered is Minakshi Meno, criminalization and policing campaigner with the Pivot Legal Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much and good afternoon, Joe. Uh, before we get into the findings and what was uncovered during this, can you explain a bit what exactly is a street sweep? Sure. So a street sweep is a practice that's intended to be a street cleaning initiative. It's done by the Vancouver Street Operations Branch, typically in partnership with the VPD. Um, So in this process, municipal city workers are out on the street accompanied by police officers, um, and they told us that they focus on cleaning up structures um, and essentially... They're ostensibly there to keep the sidewalk clear and tidy, Um, but as we're going to detail, what we've heard is that this initiative actually has a really devastating impact on the lives of people who are homeless or otherwise relying on the sidewalk. Uh, so it's basically then it's it's these groups or these crews going out and are they are they removing people from uh, business doorways or from from generally on the sidewalks or specific areas? So from what we saw over the past five days, they're they're talking to everyone on the sidewalk and they're telling them that they need to pack up typically in the morning between eight to nine a.m. Um, These folks might be sheltering under awnings, although I also saw them sheltering in front of businesses that are defunct or have been closed throughout the pandemic. They might be sheltering in front of the entryways to nonprofit housing. Um, They're really there because they have nowhere else to go in the community. And when they're told to pack up and told to leave, is there any attempt made as far as finding people housing or finding people temporary shelter, or are they just told you need to pack up and you need to go? Yeah, the logical thing would be telling people that you can't be here, but here's an alternative. What we saw and what we've heard from the nearly 100 people we spoke with is that they're just basically told you have five minutes to pack up, Um, And what they end up doing is maybe moving around the corner, waiting until the crew has dispersed and coming back to the same spot, um, because there is nowhere for people to go. Um, So it sounds like it's pretty cyclical in that every day this is happening, people are temporarily uh, moving, going back. And and what else did you find as far as uh, are, are there more people that are in these positions that are being told to move? 
Yeah, so we were out all of this week, again, because it's Homelessness Action Week, and we wanted to highlight what's happening to homeless folks on the downtown east side. We talked to people living within about a two-block radius of the intersection of Maine and Hastings, and we found that people are routinely facing the disposal of personal property, protective rain gear, um, A few people recounted really tragic stories of losing sentimental items, irreplaceable belongings like family photos. Um, And often people, you know, have very limited time to pack up. They, if you don't have a bicycle or a cart, you're just kind of stuck carrying around whatever you can fit in your pack sack on your back. So were there scenarios then when things were taken or things were were taken, I don't know if they were thrown away, was that when people maybe had left their things and and they'd gone somewhere else temporarily or are there crews that are actually taking things while people are there? So it's a mix. What we saw this week was crews taking things like um, tarps, canopies, umbrellas, tents that look abandoned, but we... We've also heard and understand that even if someone's not using that in the moment, they could be gone briefly or they could have left it for someone else in the community to use. You know, these are perfectly good items that could be redistributed. Right. What do you think, though, what what could be done to improve this in that we've talked a lot about the various tent cities that have been operating in parks in in the city? We just talked the other day, actually, about the fact that Strathcona Park has now reopened uh, as a green space. I, I think people would agree that even if you have nowhere else to go, it's not a solution to then say, okay, it's okay to live on the sidewalk. It's okay to live in the doorway or the entrance to this building. Uh, but I hear what you're saying as well, that there, there isn't housing. It's not like another option is being offered to people who are in this position. So what, where is the solution? Right. It's absolutely not okay that people are living on the sidewalk or in an awning or on a stoop. Um, the solution is really to build sufficient housing so that we don't have to cyclically displace people. And all of these things come with costs, right? We're talking about city workers, police officers, a lot of equipment that's deployed. Um, How could those costs be better redistributed to actually address the root cause, which is people are there because they don't have adequate housing. The housing that they live in might be pest infested. Um, So it really is maddening to know that they're being displaced every single day and they're going 10 meters away. There must be recognition, isn't there, though, with the crews that are tasked with sweeping the streets or with tasked with removing people that are, again, on sidewalks and in doorways. Uh, they must be seeing the same faces. Is there, is there, how does that work when uh, crews and the people who are living in these areas, they, they get to know each other or they, they expect that this is going to happen every day? Absolutely. And I did see familiarity because, you know, it's the same city workers and oftentimes it's the same folks on the street. What we ta- what we heard from the people we talked to is they kind of describe it as a game. And it's a it's a very cruel game of survival. But basically, every day they know that around eight, eight thirty, you need to roll up your belongings um, because the city workers are going to come through You have to quickly pack up and you have to put things away in an order so that hopefully your personal belongings don't get disturbed or thrown away.
Uh, you mentioned that housing is the solution, that, that more of that needs to be built. That's not a, an instant or any kind of immediate solution. So in the meantime, do you anticipate that this will just continue happening? You know, there are, I think, some critical improvements that could be made to the way that the street sweeps are done. We know that the presence of police on these sweeps is very off-putting for people. Um, and perhaps the removal of police could be done quickly. We're also calling for the replacement of the city team with a peer-led community cleaning team because no one wants to live on an unsafe or cluttered or dirty sidewalk. People are often going through there, making their way to like appointments, to clinics, to social services. Everyone's invested in the safety and hygiene of the community. But there's a, a different level of sensitivity and understanding when the cleanup is done by peers. Would peers, though, in a position like that, would somebody who's considered a peer really want to be the person who's telling another peer, you need to pack up your stuff and go? And again, that takes me to the point that we shouldn't be asking people to pack up and go when we know there's nowhere to go. But we can make every effort to keep the sidewalk clean and free of garbage and debris. Um, and again, what people might not know, especially if they're not familiar with the neighborhood, is that there's actually very few garbage cans around. So it looks messy and dirty because the built environment is insufficient. So I do think that there's a major role that peers could play, which is just helping people dispose of belongings, but not telling them you need to leave at an arbitrary time to go to an unspecified place, knowing that there's actually nowhere for you to be. All right. Well, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting findings. And I'm so happy you were able to come on the program to talk more about this. Um, and actually, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Joe. All right. This story is really top of mind for a lot of people today, talking about the official announcement on when the land border between Canada and the United States is going to reopen. Still a lot of questions, though. There are only three approved COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, Moderna, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. And the country doesn't permit mixed dosing, at least not yet. But with non-essential travel resuming in early November, the question over foreign approved vaccines is weighing on some travelers' minds. White House officials tell Global News CDC and other federal agencies are working on operational details linked to limited exceptions, acceptable proof, and which vaccines will be accepted. CDC has already informed airlines that vaccines given approval by the FDA and the World Health Organizations will be permitted, with the White House saying they anticipate the same will be true for those crossing by land. Non-essential travelers driving into the U.S. will need to be fully vaccinated to enter or risk being turned back. There will be no testing requirement except upon return to Canada. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So we know the date now is November 8th, where non-essential travelers can cross at the land border. So let's check back in with Brian Calder, who is the president at the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Hello again to you. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? Well, I was just going to phone William Shatner and see if I could get on that flight with him up on the rocket to get out of here. <laughs> well, there might be some room. He's, he did say everyone should try it, so you never yeah, know. We're getting to, I'm about the same age as him, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts? We now know the date of when fully vaccinated Canadians will be able to cross the border. What will this do for Point Roberts? Well, it's a it's a partial relief, but after you've been locked down and knocked down for a year and a half, uh, any kind of uh, positive news 
uh, is welcome. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, maybe they're giving us a day pass, uh, which is a step in the right direction, but it's not there yet. Um, because when you consider that in 2018 and 2019, each year we've done 1.5 million visits, uh, mainly from Canadians, into Point Roberts. But of that, half of them, seven, around 750,000, are here for a portion of a day or a day, and they return, parcels, gas, shopping, visiting relatives, and so forth, and then they're back out of here. So with the Canadian still re- government still requiring uh, the testing uh, uh, within 72 hours of your return, unless a Canadian gets and wants to come just for the day or half a day, they would have to get uh, to be efficient at all, uh, tested in, or say, Richmond or Delta, and come through, and then they could go back and present that within 72 hours, of course, back at the Canadian border. But I think you're talking 100 to 150 dollars to do that, and is it going to be worth it for them to spend a few hours here to buy gas? It all of a sudden takes the edge of saving money and throws it in the trash can because you add 150 to your trip, uh, it's hardly worth coming down for your parcel and saving money on gas because then you aren't saving. So that's half our market, economically speaking. So it still hampers us. And I believe unnecessarily, show us the science. I don't think it's based on science. It's based on the authoritarian military mentality of you shall all comply by the Mexican border and the Canadian border in the same fashion, and there's no exceptions. But on the other hand, they've all now, finally, after a year and a half, admitted Point Roberts is absolutely unique, as you know. I mean, you've been here, and... You know it's absolutely unique. We get Canadian water, Canadian power. Three-quarters of our houses are owned by Canadians. Ninety uh, percent of our market is driven by Canadians. So if that is an exception in, an exception in all of North America, show me somewhere else that's even close. Right. And and that certainly is. Uh, people have been calling in, uh, questioning that as well, suggesting that maybe one of the reasons the PCR test is going to still be a requirement isn't so much the science of the virus, but the economy and not wanting people to perhaps go and buy the cheaper gas and buy milk and dairy products and such in the United States. At least that's some of the theories that have been put out there. Uh, if for say Point Roberts was exempt from the PCR test to return. Is there any concern that, and, and I'm kind of asking this tongue in cheek because you're right, I do know the the area. But is there concern that suddenly people would be flooding to Point Roberts by boat and coming across the border that way to avoid taking the test? Oh, um, I don't know that they'd go to that kind of trouble. Um, and we've offered to fund the test, uh, a portable unit put at the border. If they won't pay for it like they do at all the other borders, the governments uh, pay for the one at uh, Peace Arch, for example, and they have the testing done there, but they deny that to us, even though we have more crossings on an individual personal basis than they do, uh, we're ignored, as is, unfortunately, usual treatment of Point Roberts. And so if, if they demand it, let me see how many uh, tested positive in going through Peace Arch into Canada. How many have they caught sneaking in? How many have they caught 
offending by not being vaccinated and lying that they they have been vaccinated. I'll bet it's less than one percent of a, and the cost that doing it and the inefficiency is just beyond the pale. Uh, I think it actually is less than 1%. I ran or played a clip from Dr. Howard New. He, uh, with, uh, with the public health office in Ottawa, uh, was asked about this. Uh, take a listen to, to part of his answer. Based on the data that, that we've been able to analyze to date, uh, uh, there's a certain percentage, about 0.2%, I think uh, last time I looked at the data, of fully vaccinated travelers coming to Canada that have tested positive for COVID-19. So then the question, you know, uh, ensues, okay, is that, uh, you know, uh, good or bad? You know, uh, it's, it's less than 1%. But if you look at the volumes of uh, uh, people uh, increasing coming to Canada as a percentage, the actual true number of people coming uh, would obviously uh, uh, potentially be increasing as well. So I think that right now it's uh, certainly another layer of protection. It's something that uh, is in place uh, at the moment. And we uh, continue to look at the evidence. But uh, uh, as we've said before, that there's, there's no sort of a, a system that's foolproof. And I so uh, no foolproof system. But yes, yeah, so he had said the testing of fully vaccinated people coming into Canada is in fact less than 1%. Okay, now consider Point Roberts in that dynamic. Point Roberts is probably zero, um, be, just because the fact that we're about 88% vaccinated. We, I was vaccinated last February. We follow full protocol. We're, even to this day, we mask and stuff to go up to, thankfully, our international marketplace has stayed open. Um, and we're not a threat to anybody. And then I think similarly in Delta, They've got a similar, caught up and got a similar record in, in Richmond. And so when you take that dynamic and apply it that it applies right across Canada, less than 1%, I would argue that ours is zero, and it's going to stay that way. Would you be concerned at all, though, once the border opens up, if, if there were suddenly a bunch of day trippers and people coming for short amounts of time? As we know, you can still have the, the virus and still pass it on when you're fully vaccinated. Would you be concerned that it might introduce it to, to Point Roberts? Uh, it, anything is possible in that regard, I guess. But, but we have offered to test here mm. and they won't take us up on it. And we said we'll pay for it. I've got uh, supporters in the Chamber of Commerce who've put up to $50,000 up and said, we'll put it in the mobile. The fire chief Carlton has agreed to and is a paramedic, and he has paramedics on his staff, uh, and say four hours a day. We test both sides if you want. And get an Abbott Labs uh, $15,000 rapid test. Uh, You get the results in five minutes. And most border weights here historically have been much longer than that alone. And But no, no pilot project, even though uh, Governor Inslee, Senator Murray have said, do it now. Use Point Roberts as a pilot project. It's the most easiest border to control. No one's coming through here and hoping to get to Seattle. Uh, you've got to go back out if you bring your car in through that border out the same way. What better place geographically located in North America is there and what safer place is there than Point Roberts? And they'll, they'll agree that we're unique and then treat us like we're all the same, one-size-fits-all mentality. And you can't say that you agree that we're totally unique in North America and then apply a one 
one-size-fits-all attitude towards it. Do you know what would happen right now, or has anybody in Point Roberts gone to the border? Do you still need the PCR test, or did you get the exemption for that? My wife went through to see her mother in North Vancouver uh, this morning, and she was tested on Wednesday, got the results uh, Thursday, and left at 9.30 this morning. And she's been vaccinated since April, Moderna, both both a month apart, and has her test in her hand, heads to the border. She's going to her mother's for two days, help her sisters with the 94-year-old mother, hasn't seen her for a year. And uh, the border says, oh, here's your package. As soon as you get over there, test, get on your computer, talk to someone in Ottawa. They'll walk you through how to put in the the test uh, swabs, and while you're looking on the screen, it takes about half an hour. Then uh, FedEx will come and pick that parcel up. They'll go out and get it tested, and we'll send you an email back whether you're going to have to quarantine for 14 days or not. That's overkill, absolute overkill. My wife is one of the safest. She's masks every, <laughs> consistently, even probably likes to wear it around me, I, I mean, she's gloved, and and it's bizarre. It's absolutely nuts. All right. Well, Ryan, we'll leave it there once again for today. But thanks so much. We will check in with you again soon, I'm sure. But have a good weekend. You too, Jill, and we welcome to having you back here. A company based in Waterloo that specializes in manufacturing personal protective equipment will soon be offering low-cost rapid COVID-19 antigen test kits to the public. The Canadian Shield is going to be offering five packs of testing kits on its website. The cost, about $50, and that is much lower than the going rate. So joining me to talk more about this is Canadian Shield President Jeremy Hedges. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Jill. Thanks so much for having me on. We've only got a few minutes, but wanted to ask you about this. How is the demand for these types of tests? I, I think the demand is is huge, and, and it's because it's such a uh, it's, it's great peace of mind, right? In 15 minutes, you have a pretty good idea of whether or not you are infected with COVID or infectious. So I, I think this is a powerful tool to get ahead of, of this next wave. And how does it work? So it's a it's a simple swab. It's a nasal swab. So it's not one of those uh, those tests that you stick it very far up your nose. It's, uh, it's about a minute to do. Uh, you place that into a liquid tube and dispense it on a, a little handheld test. And in 15 minutes, uh, one line you're you're okay, and two lines you should go and get a, a PCR test okay. to verify that you have COVID. Yeah. And do you know the the accuracy of the tests? I believe that uh, the, the studies have shown these are about 90 to 95 percent accurate, depending on whether you're, you know, a, a person doing it yourself or a healthcare professional. So they're, they're pretty accurate. Uh, there's been a reluctance in BC to officially use these rapid tests, but do you see these then being used more for people, uh, maybe smaller businesses or people using them on their own more for peace of mind? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's what we're seeing is we have a lot of folks that are, are using it to, you know, gather safely with, with friends or at least, uh, you know, have some peace of mind that, that no one in their circle is, is infectious. We've seen uh, close to 3,000 orders on our website in just the past week for these tests. And so are they available now? What I had seen was that they will soon be offering this. Are they available now for people? They're, they're available now. Yeah, we've been shipping them since about uh, October 1st. 
All right. And I understand, too, so is it Ontario, Alberta and B.C. only where they're available or are they available to all Canadians? Uh, yeah, for, for now, they're only available in, in those provinces and, and it, it's based on provincial guidance. So there's there's layers and layers of, of regulatory around these tests. Technically, they're a class four medical device, which typically comes with pretty strict rules for how they're distributed. But Health Canada has suspended that and is uh, relying on the provinces to make those decisions. So I think for now, it'll be those three provinces. And we're hoping that you know, this becomes widely available to Canadians across the country. Uh, so if somebody uh, in BC is listening to this and would like to get their hands on a package of these tests, so what do they do? Uh, they just go to our website, canadianshieldppe.ca, and they typically ship within uh, 48 to 72 hours, depending on what volume looks like for us. All right. And then and then it's just uh, I would imagine you, you explained it there perfectly, but the instructions are there. And I guess the important thing being, like you said, if you get a positive test, uh, don't panic about it. But it means maybe go get another test. Yeah. What, what they recommend is that if you do uh, test positive on a, on a rapid test, you follow that up with a PCR test because that's a definitive um, marker. Now, the, the interesting thing with rapid tests in particular is that they are most effective when you're infectious. It's, it's detecting antigens, your body actively fighting the virus. So they're they're quite good as a, you know, a screening tool. And w- what we do in our workplace, we test our staff uh, twice a week. And it's just that extra layer of, of peace of mind that you know that nobody in the workplace is infectious or um, you can have a relative degree of certainty anyway. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate your time today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Jill. Take care. Well, some alarming news coming from some long-term care homes in the province. At one home in Burnaby, nearly three-quarters of the residents have contracted COVID-19. That, as there is an ongoing outbreak at that facility, Provincial health officials have confirmed 90 cases at the Willingdon Care Centre. That confirmation came yesterday and it includes 69 residents of that care centre. Three people have passed away as well, although there is some word that the number of fatalities could be much higher. So what does this mean as far as vaccination rates and what we're doing to protect people who are living in long-term care? Well, Dr. Horacio Bach joins us once again, adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious diseases at UBC. Dr. Bach, thanks so much for being with us again. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, does the fact that we're still seeing outbreaks in long-term care facilities, does it does that point to the need for booster shots or what does it tell us? Yeah, uh, the point is that uh, these people, we need to understand that they are in under specific age, in very risky uh, age or population. And as we know, when we age, our system, they don't work as when we were at the 20s. So these people probably they have some uh, underlying diseases or treatments. And also the immune system is not as strong as we had, again, when we were younger. So this probably, um, assuming that they were double vaccinated, the, the level of the neutralizing antibodies that were developed as a result of the vaccine, they are uh, decreasing at some point that they start to be vulnerable. That's the reason they get the disease. 
And is it similar, and I'm not suggesting that COVID-19 and the flu are the same, but is the scenario similar in that we in the past have always made sure that residents of long-term care facilities have been vaccinated with a flu shot? We do always see, unfortunately, though, we see people pass away after getting the flu in long-term care. Is it a similar scenario to that? Well, what we don't want is that these people will, ha- I mean, this facility will have not only COVID-19, will have flu as well, because, you know, it can be like a, a double infection or part of the people can be infected with flu. And again, the immune system cannot cope as strong as we know. And that is the, the main issue. That is also related to immunocompromised people that they can be at any age, not only elders. So um, these people, they have a problem with the immune system because you have to suppress the immune system in order to uh, cope with specific diseases they have. So it's like, you know, they are, by definition, they have a lower um, or a a decrease or um, not so strong immune system to cope with these diseases. So is there even a level of vaccine then that, that could fully protect somebody in that scenario when you're dealing with age and an already compromised immune system? Well, the, uh, what we are doing now here in Canada, it, it, it started in, um, about a few months ago in Israel that they start to give the third dose and followed by Germany, France. There are more and more countries trying to um, you know, protect more the elder and uh, immunocompromised people. And it's like a, around the world. It's not something that, you know, new. And in Israel, for example, with the third dose, they, they stopped the fourth wave very, very uh, um, um, hard, you know, that was there. So they have about 12,000 people per day. And now we are talking about less than 1,000. And they are vaccinating with the third dose. Um, it's, it, I think it's very important to, to vaccinate these people because they are vulnerable no matter what. Yeah. Right. And, and I, sorry, I wasn't suggesting that, that it's not important, but I, I was wondering if there, if there comes a point where do we, do we, are booster shots, I guess, always effective? Or does there come a point where you're vaccinated, you're fully vaccinated, and there's, not, there's, there's no way to make somebody even more, I suppose, even more resilient? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, recent studies from uh, Pfizer, they show that after the second dose, the level of antibody, they start to um, uh, decrease. You know, it's not that one day to the second day you have a drop of uh, 50%. It's just a, a, a system that is um, getting rid of these antibodies for some reason inside the body. So they found that the third, the third dose, uh, you know, that was done in Israel as well, is um, jumping basically the level of protection to 95% again. It means that this shot um, apparently is, is very good because these people will be uh, protected again. How long will take that? We don't know because we just started, and that is over time we will know. But uh, definitely third shot is increasing the level of uh, protecting antibodies. Uh, do you think it will change as well once we get, we're now already, we are now in the, the time where healthcare workers and long-term care need to be vaccinated. Do you think long-term or, or we'll start to see as well that make a difference in that not bringing as much, potentially not bringing as much uh, of the virus into these facilities? Uh, yes, yes, I think so. And also it's re- related to the visitors. I know that in, in many facilities they start to be uh, stronger and stronger or more strict when people are coming to visit their, you know, their family members or friends. So it's something that altogether probably will reduce in these facilities because they are a very vulnerable, definitely one.
I wanted to ask you as well, I got a call from a listener who didn't want to go on the air, but was confused about the intervals. And I know we've talked to you about this before. She is in the scenario having had a first shot and waiting to get the second shot, saying that there's been conflicting information between her and and friends. Perhaps One pharmacist saying a month should be the interval. Another, she heard from a doctor that two months, she said she had heard from another person that the longer the interval, the better. What advice is being given to people who are in that position where they've had one shot, at what point to get the second shot? Yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, we know BCCDC here, if you remember, they implemented uh, four months uh, from the first dose because we have problems to provide. And it it turned out that these people are better protected when you get a a longer uh, time between the first and the second vaccine. The problem right now that the, if you have only one vaccine, the Delta variant that is almost 100% already in BC, you know, from all the COVID-19 um, uh, uh, you know, infected people, it's, um, so it can also uh, infect these people even if you have one vaccine. So that's the reason two vaccines is something that needs to be done. And then, um, yeah, the time is according to the, what public health is, um, you know, is uh, defining. And, you know, BCCDC, they are very um, 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 strong in that, and they do all the studies and around the world, and they compare. So um, I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, longer is better. The problem is if you are exposed when you are waiting for the second shot and then you get the disease. So that is something that you have to balance, basically. Right. Better to be fully vaccinated at a, at a sooner date rather than wait yeah. perhaps longer and be more vulnerable. I, I think at some point we will have this booster for all the population as we have with the flu. Once per year, one per six months, we don't know yet. But it's, uh, it's proven that the third shot is uh, you know, increasing the the protection to the original level that was 95%. And do you see that becoming a regular thing like the flu shot? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because, the you know, always we will have pockets here and there, and we don't know how long they last. As I said, um, the, the, the last studies, they mentioned that, you know, four to six months, even from the very beginning, we know that the level of antibodies is, is decreasing. So we know that uh, even if you have the second vaccine, after four, six months, your level of antibodies start to be decreased. And, you know, that's a problem. You are vulnerable again. But what we know is that most of the people they are reinfected after the second dose, they will have a, a flu-like symptoms and more than likely they don't end up in the hospital. We know that most of the people in ICU, now in BC, are people they are unvaccinated. Even if you have, this, again, the second shot and you get COVID, that may happen after four months, six months, you are still, you know, okay because you will have a, uh, you know, again, flu vaccine, a, a, a flu a, a symptoms, and, you know, a few days at home, it, it should go. But we don't know yet what will be the long-term uh, disability when, once we have this reinfection, basically. It's, it's something we need to study over time. All right. Uh, I'm sure we will be doing that. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for once again for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great week. 
Thanks for being with us on this rather rainy Friday afternoon. Well, two British Columbian women who say doctors advised them against getting a second COVID-19 vaccination shot have now filed a constitutional challenge of the province's vaccine passport. It's a petition that has been filed in B.C. Supreme Court. The one woman who lives in both Alberta and B.C. says she developed an adverse reaction from her first dose in May and ended up in an emergency department. The court document says the symptoms included fatigue, heart arrhythmias, severe pain and a rash. It says she received antibiotics but had more complications and that a doctor told her she should not receive a second shot. The second person named in the petition says she too got advice from a doctor that because of the adverse reaction to the first shot and her medical history, she should not get a COVID-19 vaccination. Well, does this constitutional challenge stand a chance? Joining us to talk more about this is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What are your thoughts on this, just hearing those few details about this constitutional challenge? Well, I think that it's very interesting, and I'm sure that a lot of people will agree with that. Um, I am looking forward to the ruling on this because I think it's going to bring a lot of clarity for a lot of people around this very new uh, system that we have in place here in British Columbia And I think it will end up resolving, hopefully, one way or the other, some of the controversy that surrounds it. Uh, Because we have been told repeatedly that there are very few exemptions when it comes to not getting vaccinated. And we know right now the vaccine passport, the certificate that's in place to go to places like gyms, concerts, restaurants, it doesn't acknowledge uh, the exemptions or, or acknowledge that some people might not be able to get this. Does it make a difference, do you think, that in this case, both women are saying it's not just they decided not to get a vaccine, they were told by a doctor not to? Absolutely. I think that makes a world of difference. And I was surprised when I heard that the vaccine passport system was not going to allow for medical exemptions, because as you said, they are very rare, but they do exist. And so perhaps what will come of this will be some type of process in order to allow that very small minority of people to apply for perhaps a formal exemption from the passport system so that they too can go about, you know, living their ordinary normal lives. Uh, Does it make a difference that from what we're being told at this point, the vaccine passport, the certificate that's in place right now to go to these places, uh, that it's we are being told it's not permanent, that at, at this point it's supposed to be lifted at the end of January, although that could be extended. But because it's not a permanent program, does that play into it? Well, yes and no. I mean, sometimes when something is just in place for a temporary period of time, it may be considered to be less of a breach, perhaps, on somebody's uh, personal rights. Um, But again, you know, if it is a breach, it's a breach, no matter how long it was in place for. And so perhaps it will go to, you know, maybe the remedies that are involved if a breach is ultimately found. Um, And it may also go to whether or not these to petitioners wish to uh, carry the petition forward through the courts because it can be a very costly and time-consuming process. Is it something like a class action in the case like this? Can more people join or if it's filed by two people, do those two people, are those the two people that have to see it through? Well, typically in these types of cases, we may see other people file very similar petitions. 
And those could be held in abeyance, waiting to see what the final resolution will be on this lead matter. Um, So it just depends. It depends on, uh, you know, who the lawyer is who's filed it, whether or not they're accepting others uh, to to join, and so on and so forth. So it'll be a strategic decision, I think, um, and it will depend if more people want to come forward. And we know things in court tend not to be speedy. Uh, With something like this, are we looking at something that's going to take months, going to take years, could be challenged? How how might this play out? Yeah, I mean, I would say that we're going to be waiting at least six months, probably in best case scenario, to get a decision on something like this. And then, of course, it could be appealed. Uh, Whichever side, you know, has leave to appeal could do so within 30 days of the decision. Uh, And then it would go up to the Court of Appeal, which, again, could take at least another six months to have another decision and perhaps even to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, we've also talked a fair amount about this and going back in in some of the earlier months of the pandemic, uh, other challenges that have been revolving around worship, uh, when worship uh, was was taken online and people couldn't gather in churches or religious uh, places, there were, there were many people saying that goes against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, but we've heard repeatedly that some of these health decisions trump that, that yes, there is the Charter of Rights, but when it's for the greater good or made for a health reason, that is above that. Could that be the argument made in this case? Yeah, I think that will be the position that the government will take in defending this petition. But, you know, that being said, whether or not it's successful is a different story, because I think that there is a a nuance to difference here in this case, rather than the case that you previously mentioned with respect to those religious rights. Because here, what we're saying is that a very small minority of people who already have pre-existing medical conditions are being excluded, and it's an unlawful exclusion. So I haven't had an opportunity to review the petition in this case, but I do expect that they would make arguments under Section 7, which, of course, guarantees your right to life and liberty, uh, and so on and so forth. And they may have a quite substantial argument there, um, depending on how uh, the evidence pulls out. Does it matter that the areas or places that require vaccination and proof of vaccination are are deemed non-essential, that it's not stopping people from doing things like grocery shopping or getting medical treatment or essential things? And yes, again, I think that's a position the government will take. I think that they will say, you know, listen, uh, you're not precluded from engaging in these essential services. Uh, But, you know, again, Section 7 could be triggered here if the government action significantly impairs a person's physical well-being or their mental well-being. And for people who are precluded from participating in normal, you know, daily life with their friends and family as a result of a pre-existing medical condition that they cannot control, that argument could be pretty significant. But I guess, too, there is the the possibility, like you said, of, of this going several months and then there could be appeals. If it is, in fact, temporary and we get ahead of this thing and come out the other side and it's taken away, it, it could all be for nothing, could it not? Of course. We always run that risk. So, again, you know, we're going to have to see where this goes. If this is only in place for a couple of months, then perhaps it's not in the petitioner's best interest to carry this forward. All right. Sarah Lehman, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thanks so much for having me. Take care.